Welcome to Flash Gordon, the official story of the film podcast. This series will look behind the scenes of the forthcoming book that celebrates the making of the movie from 1980. I'm filmmaker and author John Walsh, and I will take you on a journey through time and space to discover how Flash Gordon has become one of the most iconic science fiction films in the last 40 years. I will be speaking with the cast and the crew and fans of the film and giving you an insight into the making of the book. As we lead up to the publication date in October, I will reveal details of forthcoming events and there'll be a chance to win copies of the book too. This could be a bumpy ride, so for God's sake, strap yourselves down! In this episode, I speak exclusively to Studio Canal's restoration team on Flash Gordon. Stephen Hill heads up the 4K technical team, and Jahanzab Hayad was the project manager on Flash Gordon. I started by asking Stephen why, in fact, we need to restore Flash Gordon. Uh, why do we need to create HD Master for what is a relatively recent film? It was a film that was made in our lifetime. With technology, um, no matter how sophisticated you think it is at the time, when you look back, it always has its flaws. Um, and that's especially true when you're talking about optical technology. Um, we were, when, when, when I first started, we were doing like, you know, transfers that would only be ever seen in um, SD. So, you know, the old PAL or like, you know, on a TV format, so only 525, sorry, 625 lines. Um, now, um, we're in a position where we can have like a huge color gamut. So the range of colors that we can display is significantly more than, you know, only a couple of years ago. Um, and also the, the nature of film is that we've always been, especially in restoration, we've always been chasing that kind of filmic look to capture what it was like when somebody first saw it in the cinema or actually how the director saw it in a pristine environment um, when they signed it off originally. Um, that we're getting very, very close if, 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 if we're not there yet. I mean, I, I hesitate to say we, we get, we, we're capturing it exactly because I may well be doing a call in a year's time and say, actually, now we've got it. <laughs> um, so, the, you know, the real reason to restore things is because um, we feel that we can achieve an improvement on what's currently out there and we can deliver a much better experience for the consumer. And there are some times, you know, when we go back to the original materials and we realise actually what's out there, it's as good as we can get at the moment with the technology involved. And Jahanzeb and I are constantly, you know, looking at those things and researching them to make sure that we are delivering that, that, that improvement. So Jahanzeb, what, what kind of condition were these original materials in? Because we're talking 40 plus years, aren't we? Yes, 40 plus years, and they were stored quite well in Paris, I believe, by Studio Canal, and they were actually in decent condition. Um, the scanning of the original negative went through quite well. There wasn't any kind of difficult splices or issues like that. And in terms of the negative, I think the kind of biggest damage we really encountered was um, tears and splices um, through the image, which eventually got digitally restored. So it was in good condition, so was both it the picture and sound. Was it a separate A and B neg roll then, or was it all just cut as one? Cut as one. Is is that unusual? Because a film that like that that's that's got opticals going in, would would you not have expected to to have been a, on a separate A and B neg roll? 
Um, very good question. I don't know if I think there was a lot of composite shots and there's lots of trims of negatives containing the effects. So I think they probably use that to kind of work with the optical effects. So yeah, I, I think that's the main thing because there's so many special effects in it. The the thing that we worked with was exactly that. It was it was the final version that would have been before they moved to um, go to the release print. So um, where would the interpos have been at this stage? This wasn't the interpositive, was it? Or no, no, not at all. So would uh, you say this was the camera negative then that was cut? Yes, yes. So it was the cut this, camera neg. This is this is so we have in our studio vaults we have the original camera negative that is then with a cut camera negative in its final reels. That's and it. with any restoration, we always try to go back to camera negative. We don't want to use interpos and interleg for obvious reasons. We want the best image quality. Because often restorations, they say we've gone back to the original film elements. And then when they don't say camera negative, they say <clears> film <throat> elements. You think, oh, hang on, this could be a dodgy print from an Odeon. And, you know, you just don't know, do you? I, I think for, for us, there's, there's two key things that we look at to do when we restore. The first one is we always go to neg. I think there was a fashion for a while, um, certainly in the early days, where people didn't like to touch the neg because it was this, you know, a feral kind of uh, medium that was sat in the vault and everyone was too scared to to, to even touch it, um, which was, you know, fine, especially when you consider where the technology was at. Um, I think we're now in a place where most, most, most studios will restore from the negative. Um, I think, you know, once you're capturing at like 8K or 4K, um, you're, you know, it's unlikely that we're going to miss anything or we're going to need to get out again. So you don't need to, you know, keep, taking it out of the cold store and putting it back back in. Um, the other pillar that we have is that we always um, try to involve the filmmakers. And that's really essential because, you know, we don't want to add our own impression of what we feel this film should look like. We we want to very much take, you know, take care of what the what the director's vision was. And I know there's some, you know, inter well industry discussion about you know does the director get the right to revise how that looks um i'm lucky enough to not really have come across that but i certainly i've heard that 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 can happen certainly from some of our colleagues in the industry and um, i guess we've just been we've been okay all the directors we've worked with have been fantastic well i suppose there'd be a dispute amongst say a dop a director of photography might say actually it should be me because i'd be at the laboratory back in the day more than the director would and I know that well, the director exactly. that's, why, yeah. that's why I use the word filmmaker because um, like sometimes it's director, the director taking the lead. And I mean, a lot of the time in the films we're doing, actually, we're, we're kind of uh, stuck with who's survived. Um, and that, that's, that's unfortunately reality. But so we worked on the, um, the DOP uh, for uh, Don't Now, for instance, um, and also uh, The Man Who Fell to Earth. So both of those restorations were done the other side just because there, were, there was no other way. So the, the director of photography on this was Gil Taylor, of course, who, who did the lighting on The Omen and on the first Star Wars film, A New Hope. So um, did, did you think of looking back at either of those as a reference point or, 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 or is that sort of putting too many obstacles in your way? I think that, throw, I think that throws up um, more obstacles, yeah. Potentially that almost opens... I understand it, absolutely. I think it opens up rabbit holes. I think it's good for a, any colorist, any realm, to always know their cinematographer, know the work, know what type of lighting they like, uh, what colors they lean towards, what kind of looks they go for for certain types of genres, etc. Um, but with this one, 
when it comes to our, not just this one, but our restorations, I we try to get so we get the cut negative for a scan that we do the restoration from. We then send as many uh, 35 mil prints that we can that we hold in our vault, and we get all our previous HD releases that we sent our Blu-rays. So we give that to the colorist at the restoration company, in this case, Silver Salt Restoration. And then um, they can then use the kind of all the various prints and HD masters to come to the right conclusion. Um, I think, you know, in that specific example, someone doing the lighting for Star Wars, it's, you know, that wasn't, they weren't the exact DOP on the film. So we wouldn't see their themes of a cinematographer carry through, if that makes sense. It'd be good to definitely watch all the films building up to Flash Gordon that that was shot, but yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, when you when you've got Mike Hodges involved, luckily we don't need to go into that type of detail. But um, what I will say is there are the only instance where we will look at in in that much detail is where we have no filmmakers to collaborate with. Um, so, like you know, an example there really would be Deer Hunter, Deer Hunter. Uh, where where we went into great detail about you know look, listening to commentaries. Um, and, and, and just to... articles and articles from the time. Um, yeah. And I suppose the limitation of the stock as well. So if someone's shooting on a very fast stock and it gives quite a grainy look, you, you, you're trying to, I suppose, maintain that. You're trying to preserve that to some extent. And it's, it's quite interesting, actually, going back to the Don't Look Now um, example. So we had Tony Richmond uh, grading the HD and HDR versions in the Studio Cloud Theatre. And for the points that sometimes I was in the room, he would be looking at a shot that perhaps he shot at the time, kind of on the shot from the hip, kind of they didn't light it because it was just a great opportunity in Venice. And with the new 4K scan working in HDR, he actually, there were times where he thought, okay, I can actually fix this shot. Let's, let's brighten up that corner. Cause you know, and he would retell the story to, almost to himself. Like, oh yeah, we jumped in the canal. Oh, we shone, we shone a light on that. We shined a light on that bit, but we didn't quite do it on the other bit of the frame. And so there is a chance for cinematographers to, make i don't want to say not fixes but not corrections but improvements that perhaps you know they couldn't at the time or were restricted to at the time due to film stock due to the way that the print was timed at the lab that's quite controversial because uh, i had this exact same discussion with ray harryhausen they were doing a blu-ray of jason the argonauts and uh, i went i was in his kitchen this morning and he said oh, i got a call from grover crisp at uh, columbia oh, yeah. pictures because grover looks yeah. after all of the uh, the archive there and he said that uh, they're going to stabilise the picture for Jason. They're going to remove any dirt and they're going to give it a stereo sound. And he said uh, they, they've offered me wire removal. So on some of the uh, flying sequences for the harpies, you could see some wires. And I think there was a couple of surface gauges that had been left in shot. And he said, oh, I think I'm going to go ahead and have those digitally removed. And I was like, oh, I don't know, you know, to, to what extent is that a, uh, a colouring of the past too far? Um, I... I think Sorry. on the on the Tony Richmond example, I think in that example that is absolutely correct and the right thing to do. That is a cinematographer who himself in 1972 jumped in the canal with a camera on his shoulder and filmed it. So he best knows. Of course, we always want the director to sign off, like we would at the time in the lab when they made the prints in '73. But we have to trust, I guess, that they they know best. If you have the right filmmakers involved, I think the senior ones on flash as well we also tried to contact the sound mixer because we didn't want to just focus on picture it was also audio so i can find the name of my emails i can't remember quite hard ivan i can't remember the surname but unfortunately we um ivan never got back to us so we tried leaving voicemails and emails but that was also another avenue of uh filmmaker involvement we wanted um you know i think i think it brings up a good point though on on, on the flash because um you know we've been on that we've 
we're kind of the mind, like, you know, we, if we'd been left to our own devices, we probably would have left the streams um, as they were. And obviously there are quite a few streams in Flash Gordon. I mean, it's almost renowned for it to a degree. Um, but look, I mean, when we when we spoke to uh, Mike, it's actually one of the things he was most focused on because I, I mentioned this um, just off the bat and he was like, we got rid of those in the 35 mil process. And I think that's what we have to sometimes uh, remember is when we're, we're, we're now restoring to such a level that we are capable of reveal. It's cap it can reveal stuff that wouldn't have been seen from 35 mil print. You would have gone from the negative, then you would have gone to obviously the interpos and then internet. That's essentially a few photocopies away. So you're every time you do that, you're losing a bit of resolution. So there is an argument to say that in, he could have, by the time he got to those 35 mil prints, they, the lab could have fixed those, or fixed in inverted commas those those issues, um, and you know we thought about it pretty hard, and it, it it just you know at that point I wasn't there in the lab. I can't, I, can't, I don't have I I can't go back and say they're definitely there, Mike. Um, so we we have to take that at face value. Um, so for me, we spent a lot of time and, and and money making sure that we got the result that he wanted. Um, and that, in this instance, was to remove remove those wires. So how, how did you work with... Uh, Mike Hodges wrote the forward for my Flash Gordon book as well, and uh, I, I've known Mike a few years, but um, how, how was it working with him? What was the workflow? I mean, how did it work? Did you send him files? Did he come in? Well, this is... I mean, so we had some grand plans, in all honesty. We had some very grand plans. We were, you know, going to give him a tour of the, you know, the restoration and special effects facilities of London, um, and, you know... We were really looking forward to it. Um, unfortunately, uh, during that period, obviously we we had, we had lockdown um, just as we were about to start, actually, which was frustrating. Because frustrating in two ways. The first way is that actually all of a sudden we had to move all of the um, restoration tools and ensure that the facility could continue because we we weren't actually quite there yet, quite ready to have him in. And then also it meant that you know Mike at his age. Um, quite rightly, uh, was risk averse, and he he didn't want to come in and see it actually in situ in any of those facilities that we had lined up. Um, so what we did was um, we 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 exchanged um, we we got it to the level where we thought we were done and finished, um, and then we sent him some copies for him to to to, to review. There was actually no other way, um, but you know, hopefully, when 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 all, when, when all is well again in the world. Uh, we'll invite him in and he'll, you know, can have another look and we can have a bit of atmosphere around the film because I think, you know, there's, there's always signing off, signing off something in your home would be very different to signing it off in front of uh, lots of other people. Yeah, no, definitely. I, maybe, I, I, maybe he could be more critical actually on his own. <laughs> I, I remember literally about a week or two before our building lockdown, Stephen, you, me and Candy were scheduling his, uh, his, 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 his itinerary. Literally, we were like, right, this day you're going to go Silver Soul, the cab picks you up. We're going to do the sound mix here in West London. I mean, we were really just lining it all up, and then the world changed. And like I say, you know, we, we consulted. We consulted him. To, you know, he he actually came into the office a couple of times um, to to not just talk to us, but also to talk to company and talk about the release plans, etc. Um, so we we had that initial consultation, and like I say, it was very it was very early on. He made it clear. Uh, well, I mentioned strings, and he, he said what strings. <laughs> so, but that was his feeling on it. Um, and then, like I say, you know, um, we were always open to make any any color changes. And 
you know, we actually thought that um, we actually thought there would be uh, more in terms of the changes. But you know, we work with a we work with a great facility uh, called Silversol. Um, they're like you know the premier facility uh, certainly in, in the UK. Um, and you know, this is again with our restorations. It's about getting the best team. Um, across those materials to ensure that that product really works. So we have David, uh, we have um, Silver Salt working on the restoration, um, and then we have uh, a guy called David yes. McKenzie who does our does our encoding for, for the Blu-ray to ensure that again, because this is the other bit that people may not well, may not realise is that we can produce the great rest, a great restoration, and then if it's not encoded correctly we can be at square one, you know? Um, so we've now got like a, you know, a, a dream team together. I, you know, I must confess, it's taken some time to, 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 to deliver that team and make sure we've got the right people in place. But since, since we've uh, had those partnerships, um, we, I, I believe our customers have been very happy. Now, some of the um, work that Frank Vanderveer did, the blue screen work, the compositing work, there's a lot of uh, transparent sequences um, and, and it's mainly because they had to hammer through, uh, you know, it's, it's such a heavy effects schedule, but they weren't happy with a lot of the compositions, a lot of the composited shots. So have you been able to go back and, un, you know, well, fill in some of those translucent shots? What I will say is there's a lot, we've got a lot of material. Unfortunately, the material is like, in, like we, you know, it's in varying uh, degrees of uh, decomposition. Um, we we took a look and we took some of some examples and, did, and ran some tests and what we found was actually the source we started to work from was actually the best we, we got the best results. Um, we were able to make some serious improvements um, just using the grading actually. Um, so there there are I think there's a specific part. Correct me if I'm wrong, Jan, with the airplane windows. Um, where, where you know, we, we don't know how the original um, scans happen, or, or, but the, we were able to bring those back to life in a way which we didn't expect. Um, so those are the kind of improvements that we were we, we, we were able to do. Like I say, when we went back to those trims of which there are like you know, three hundred cans or something, um, it's just, it was just very difficult to to nail those absolutely in the same way that we could based on using the materials we ended up going with. So I suppose my next question is then, and this is, because uh, I found some for the book, the deleted scenes. I have photos of the scenes that were deleted. I have photos of scenes that weren't even shot, they built sets for. It's just like, this is this is crazy. Um, did you find um, what you think uh, could have been deleted scenes? And I know that's a whole controversial uh, area because it's a time and money yeah. thing. But Here's the thing. I tell you, if we could find them, we would be using them <laughs> in some way, shape or form. Um, but what I will say is this, um, you know, we've, we've done several things like there's a lot within our within our catalogue. There, there, there is a little bit of mystery. You know, we've got the, the, the Wicker Man, for example, um, where, you know, there's a there's a long there's lots of stories about um, a long version of that. Um, and, you know, what I'd like to do is if anyone has those those elements at all or knows where I can hands up please get in touch with us because <laughs> we, we we really we would really like to do something with them and often these things are in the hands of private collectors when we think of old doctor who episodes and telecordings it'd be an engineer who's worked at the time who thought oh, i'll save this because we're going to throw it out so somebody might have it even if it's a print a 35 mil print you'd want to hear from them 
the, the, the treasure the, the treasure that has been left in skips around Pinewood and Elstree is quite frankly amazing. <laughs> I, I imagine you could still pick up stuff in those sort of places, to be honest with you. So were, were there any scenes that were, were sort of the biggest challenges that you came to something you thought, this is, needs the most work, you know? We, we had... We had elements within scenes and within sequences. So um, when they're chasing Flash at the end of the spaceship, all the shots with that spaceship were quite difficult, and a lot of a lot of kind of care to be taken in terms of grading, matching the grade, the background, the sky, all the moving elements. So that was quite a big one. When you can see the mountains in the background and you can see them through the smashed windows, obviously that's composite shots. So our colors have to draw um, grading windows across every window and grade each individual piece of the mountain you see to match when you see the mountain in the wide shot. Um, so kind of lots of intricate little grading details have to be done to ensure, you know, an audience doesn't see a bit of a, a color incorrection or a color shift, should we say. Um, and then in general, I think in terms of the color in HDR, our color has kind of expressed that as soon as they put Flash Gordon into this HDR color space, it was just really great and not too much was needed to be done because the the vivid colors just stood out. They became more vivid in HDR, the sets, the costumes, everything. So Flash Gordon really suited us doing a 4K HDR disc. So we also had, there were also some tears and um, I think, you know, I, I, challenge, I challenge anyone that watches to find them <laughs> because they're being really well put together. Including across faces, people's faces, so yeah. Well, I found that with the photographs because with um, working with the Ray Harryhausen Foundation, Ray kept everything. So Clash of the Titans, we have thousands and thousands of items. We have transparencies. We have beautiful stills. We have paperwork, and it's all in pristine condition. For Flash Gordon, I had to go to the fan base because there's very little in the archives. Universal Pictures had a few bits and pieces, and the good folk down at Studio Canal, where you are, of course, helped me enormously. But most of the best images were found through the fans, and a lot of them had water damage because they just hadn't been looked after. And so it's amazing to think that Clash of the Titans, which cost half of what Flash Gordon cost, everything exists, it's in pristine condition. And there, Flash Gordon, it's just as if everything's sort of been, as you say, thrown out with the rubbish. And what a shame. Yeah, I, you know, we, we're often surprised as well um, by the difference in conditions with materials that are kept in the same place. Um, it's almost as if like someone sprinkled magic dust over some of the elements and the other ones have like, you know, sat in a, a potato sack or something. But um, you know, for a fact, they're all been in the same place. Um, I'm not sure we'll ever uncover exactly the science behind that. Um, but we, 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 we'll try to uh, make sure we, you know, we now have a cold store, for example, and we make sure that we, we store everything optimal. So, you know, there's, there's hopefully elements out there still. When Dino was making the film, he made great play of the fact it was going to be shot and recorded in Todd AO. And uh, so it brings me on to my next question about the, uh, the mag track, which is the, the, the magnetic recording of the film, which would be on 35 millimeter width um, strip. I mean, did you, were you working with the original mag track for the sound? We were. I'm just going to double check if it wasn't sound negative or mag track. Um, I have a feeling it was the mag track. We got, so the elements we got were um, the mag track, we got the DME, um, five one stems, the DME stereo stems, um, that was on digital on format, not on 35 mil format. So that was held on DA88 tapes. Um, 
and we kind of restored those and sent those to a kind of sound uh, specialist to work on and restore. So, so those DA eighty um, eight. I mean, it's hard to play those now because it's it's hard to get machines, isn't it, for DA eighty eight? Yes. Yeah. Uh, so would, I. Sorry, that, sorry. Would that have been from a magnetic recording of the original sound mix from the mag, or would it have been from the optical stems? It wouldn't have been from the optical stems. I wouldn't have thought it. No, it would have come from a mag. So at some point in the mid to late 80s into mid 90s, someone would have got that mag track on the, I don't know what it's called, the mag track telecine machine, but um, on that and transferred it onto a DA88 tape. So it would have come from the mag track. And then the mag track that we scan is, of course, the base for what we do for the sound, but the these D88s with the stereo and 5.1 DMEs, we can use really? those to suck. And, and you know, just on the audio, uh, in terms of where we're, where we're at with it. Um, we know that there were some flaws in the original audio transfer for video. Um, and I think, you know, the focus of what we've tried to achieve is to remedy those flaws. I am, well, I'm 100% sure that that was a flaw in the, you know, the, the, the transfer that was done when we went to video. It's, it's not something that was, you know, an original issue. Um, so some of those long-standing um, complaints have been remedied. And what were they? Because sometimes for older films, there's a syncing issue as well. So what, what were the kind of standout complaints from the from the Well, there, there, there is, it's, a sync, it's a syncing issue um, and a, a pitching uh, one at the beginning. Um, but like I say, we, uh, we we took a lot of care to make sure that this will meet expectation and, uh, we'll, and, and will serve as a huge improvement. During the sound restoration process, um, we also discovered that when we send out um, a copy of our film to kind of the platforms and TV broadcasters, the Skies, BBCs, Netflix, etc., they receive the full HD 5.1 master version that you get on your Blu-ray. And of course, most people don't have a 5.1 setup, so you, you down it naturally down mixes into stereo, plays out your tele speakers or your <clears throat> excuse me your external speakers. What we discovered during the sound restoration was that. Um, when the 5-1 mix got down mixed into the stereo, we lost some bass guitar and kick drum information from the music. And now everyone knows when it comes to flash and the music, it's, it's almost as essential as the film. It goes hand in hand. So our sound mixer worked on, um, to kind of quote his exact notes, um, the LFE signal now only contains low frequency effects like booms and rumbles rather than the previous 5.1 mix rate contained important music information. This now means that any stereo downmixes from the new 5.1 will not be missing the bass guitar and kick drum from the music. Um, so that was a good discovery and a good fix that we made. Um, and then there was the kind of the usual ones, restoration, distortion, uh, digital clicks, dropouts. Um, a few adjustments were made in the dynamic range because there were some moments where perhaps quite the dialogue needed just to be raised a little bit. So I suppose that's why it's always better to buy the physical disc because you have the options. You can you can switch between the original, you know, uh, stereo track and which is more censored, or you can you can choose the others. And um, were there, were there any interesting trims? Because um, I don't know how much you guys know about this, but uh, you'll know, of course, Howard Blake did the orchestral for the film, but a, quite a well-known composer was chucked off um, the picture. I can tell you who that was um, because he's no longer with us. But Paul Buckmaster who used to produce for Rolling Stones and lots of other big groups at the time, were Queen's preferred choice to be the orchestral composer for the film. 
And when Mike turned up and found that um, Mr Buckmaster had only done, I think it's two or three minutes of score uh, ready for the orchestra, the 70-piece orchestra, he had to ring Dino up and say, we have to cancel this session at a cost of $50,000. And uh, so it was a, a tricky phone call. But there, there is some music, I think, from Paul Buckmaster, the, the famous uh, producer from the 70s, um, for Flash Gordon. So they're, they're, whether it's on a little zonal quarter inch or whether there's a bit of a mag track of it, that might be somewhere. So did you find any, any deleted music trims? No, but we're going to take another look. <laughs> um, no, we, you know, we, we found, it's funny, like in our archive, um, we're, we're always going through our archive. Like I say, it's a huge, vast labyrinth of stuff. Um, but we actually turned up uh, some, uh, some recording sessions for The Man Who Fell to Earth. But it was kind of a, a happy accident. Um, I think looking for, the, looking for the elements you're talking about, it's a little bit like looking for a needle in a haystack. But um, I think with the information you've just given us, um, I think we might have a deeper look. <laughs> because how, how are the, um, because this is one of the issues I've had in the past when I've looked for my old negs, because I've got old tapes, but negs are kept in different places. And when Soho Images left the scene and went to somewhere else, everything went to an archive and they, they took the names of production companies off and put barcodes on. So I had old films that couldn't be found because they were under barcodes that nobody had shared with me and so on. So how, when you find a tin, do you keep the original labels on, like the Technicolor label, and do you, do you put something with it? I mean, how do you know what's in each tin? Well, first of all, we've still got loads of stuff that in our, in our archive that says at Soho Images, so maybe you and I can have a chat afterwards. Um, but uh, secondly to that, yes, you know, ideally you want as many stickers and stuff on there as you can because it, it, it tells you the provenance of, 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 the, of the element. Um, uh, we, there, one thing that has happened, unfortunately, is that when we, um, when we, when we moved, when we, when we moved all of the materials that ended up in the cold store into the cold store, it was important to create a pristine and keep a pristine environment. So for those specific elements that, you know, and we're really talking here, um, film negative, um, that, that, that history would have been lost. However, we do have lots of dockets. Um, and these dockets are like literally in and out um, <laughs> across, you know, decades of, uh, of, of, of material movement. Um, so we do have that. Uh, and often when we, when we start these projects, actually the first part of the project is we get several boxes taken out of storage to have a look at what they hold. Um, because, you know, they, we, we, could, we were even in a position where I think on Bandbusters where we uncovered the fact that um, we've been doing it wrong all these years, and actually the ratio was one seven five um, when we we've been doing it. Um, I think one. Uh, I think we're doing. I think we're doing a cabinet. One three, I mean, one three seven probably. One three seven. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we're always turning up these things, and you know, I think over the years people have tried to do the best job they can with the resources there that, that are available to them. Um, at the moment, at Studio Canal, there's a huge focus on catalogue. Um, and so we're investing quite heavily in that because it, we believe it's part of our, our, our DNA and you know what sets us apart. Um, so we're, we're really in a good place now um, and we're starting to right some of the wrongs. Um, and you know, like I say, going through and figuring out the provenance of these things is all part of that process. We're not there yet because it's a huge project. <laughs> and ideally I'd have a team of 100, but um, 
it's really just me and Jahanzeb. <laughs> what well, is the thing, isn't it? It's time and money. And, you know, when, when Dino was making the film, he had um, three times the budget of Star Wars to make Flash Gordon. And he had all of the access to the personnel he needed. But the one thing he didn't have and the one thing he really needed was time. He'd, 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 uh, this is no criticism of him, by the way. Um, the deal he'd set up meant that he had to shoot really, really fast. And once it was in focus and there was no hair in the gate, that was like a print, move on. And, and, and that's the same way they dealt with the FX work. They had to just, they were really sort of running to keep up with everything. They could have afforded motion control. They didn't have the time for it. You know, they could have afforded better flying sequences and had the entire Superman people in. They didn't have the time to set it up. So it's a shame they had three times the budget of Star Wars, and yet, you know, it's not three times the film in many people's books. But, um, <laughs> you know, it's... Uh, so do, do you guys have a favourite scene in the film, you know, regardless of the restoration? Is there a scene where when you finished it, you thought, that's, you know, that's... I can look at that, that's, that's really my scene. Do you mean nothing? So nothing regarding the restoration. Well, yeah, just, just a favourite uh, scene when you came to do it. You thought, you know, regardless of any errors or anything, you thought, I really like this scene, and I'm really glad that I've worked on this and made it really sing. Uh, I've got to think about that. I've, I mean, I've just spent the last eight months analysing this film, so technically, like literally, just technically, there's no, you know, when I watch the film now, I'm not watching characters or subplots. I'm literally just checking that real change was okay, that stabilisations are right. Digital clicks been removed. It's 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 so cold. You know, it take me probably another six months before I can watch Flash normally again. Um, I think I really enjoyed. You know, it's it's quite opening in after they've landed on the planet. I quite enjoyed once they take Ada um, away as a prisoner, and you're entering the Empress kind of environment. And I like the sets. I like the costumes. The kind of the vibe of kind of how sinister it all is. I quite, I quite like that actually. I think that really gets me in, really gets me into the into the world. Cool. And what about yourself, Stephen? Do you have a, a moment? I, I, you know, I think the one that the one that plays on the the heartstrings the, the the most. It's the the one where everybody comes together at the end to defeat Ming. You know, that's the bit where no, no matter how old and cynical I get, you know, that's the bit where I'm like, wow, great, everyone's together. We're gonna. We're going, to, we're going to turn this round and all, all, all people that were, started off as foes have found some kind of, you know, bonding thing to, to, to unite them. Um, and I just think that, I just find that very uplifting, um, you know, and so I think that will always be, and also it, it, it helps that it's done to like a, a really great soundtrack. So, you know, even going back to my kind of, I think when I discovered this, I must have been, what, like 11 or something. Um, I, I remember jumping up and down on the sofa um, and obviously... I'm not the kind of size where I can do that and get away with it anymore. But in my in my mind's eye, that's exactly what I'm doing every time I see that scene. It was an enormous risk, though, wasn't it? When you think about other science fiction films from the time, it was either Jerry Goldsmith doing motion picture, Star Trek the motion picture. It was John Williams working on Star Wars, on Close Encounters. To do something like this, I mean, this would be like... Um, I suppose the equivalent of maybe Stormzy doing a doing a remake of Jason and the Argonauts. You know, I mean, it's it, it's so out there for Dino to have taken that risk. It's it's, it's it was quite a ballsy move, wasn't it? Yes, I, I, I think the interesting thing is it is, but at the same time, it's kind of like it's a kind of it's a vision of the future because if you look at it, you know, the success of the the, the modern day film. I mean, you can't go about mentioning like Marvel. Um, you know, this is this is exactly that. It's like, uh, if in some ways, I always feel with with Flash Gordon, 
it's as if Britain had Marvel. That's what they would have gone with, you know. That would be the ad- the comic book adaptation style. Um, so yeah, although it was although it, it was it was a risk, and like you know, certainly out there, I actually I think it was more forward looking than uh, than you know some of those I, other I, you know more realist re- realist films. I'd like to actually make a reference because my favorite bit personal, my favorite film of all time is Tim Burton's Batman from 1989, which is also a comic book adaption from the 80s. And if you think about it, you had kind of John Williams did the Superman score, which is so iconic and arguably really set the standard for how great a superhero score could be in cinema, which, you know, Hans Zimmer takes up the mantle today with Dark Knight, for example. Um, then, you know, Dina does the Queen soundtrack with Flash in 8081. And then 1989, Warner Brothers' Tim Burton with Batman go, let's get Danny Elfman for the great gothic orchestral score and let's grab Prince. So I do think it had an effect. And as Steven said, it was forward looking because that Queen soundtrack helps create a world. It's the sound of that world. And same for me now, when I listen to some of those Prince songs, I think of Gotham City. I'm not thinking of Prince or the 80s, you know, it helps set the sound for that. So I do think it was a brave move and, and a forward-thinking move, like Stephen said. It's been proved right, isn't it? Because when we, when we boil this down, a 4K restoration on this scale is a vast investment. So to do something like that for a library release, you know, when, when Flash Gordon came out, it wasn't loved by everyone. And yet to think 40 years later, there's a big investment from a major film company such as Studio Canal. I mean, you guys wouldn't be doing this just because, you know, you like the film. It's because it really is something that's worth preserving and saving and really has a, has a strong market for it. it it resonates it resonates with its core audience and i don't i think it's a film that's always going to stay with our audience if you loved it in the 80s you're not going to change your opinion as you grow older in life and i think you know all of us are kind of testament to that um yeah i think it's also refreshing you know it's like you know it's that it's that bit of color that uh, you know i think Everyone certainly, certainly, I was craving during when, when, when I first saw it, which I have to hesitate to say was post eighties, so not when the original release was out there. Um, but yeah, I think it, you're right. It does, it does, it does look a little bit odd in the context of its kind of uh, the it, 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 the the other titles that were released around it. Um, but I think if you take the long view of, of film history, then actually it, it finds its place rather neatly right at the beginning of those kind of comic book adaptations. In the last three years, from my kind of knowledge, it's the most amount of money we've put in a restoration, actually. Flash Gordon was a, for me personally, as I project managed the restorations, it was the most expensive, by a bit of a distance, actually, compared to other projects. So, you know, compared to, for example, what I'm spending on Lady Killers. So a, a huge investment from Studio Canal was put into it. And I was the point I wanted to make earlier was that um, I think nostalgia is really up right now. People have got nostalgia for their own upbringing, whether it be nineties, eighties, seventies, and so you know there is a thirst for that. You know, if you go do a theatrical release of Flash One UK, the fans will come. I, I know in current climate things are a bit different, but you know the fans will come out and go see this, and they'll do a one day special, and it continues. The, the film's life continues. There, there have been more expensive in in investments, but not. Um... Not actually, we've not actually for like a actually for British film there there there, there have been, um, but it was it was certainly up there with those. Ah, <laughs> oh, but is it but a British film? Is it a British uh, film? It's it's, it's uh, distributed by. It was originally going to be taken by Paramount. Dino did a deal with Universal. Dino is an Italian. He got some of the money from Italy. I think Dino, if he was here, might say, "Hey, 
it's an Italian, Italian film, film. <laughs> you know, uh, it's not a British I, film. Well, I've always struggled. I've always struggled with this because what, I had an argument with someone in the industry about it's, it's by the director's nationality, and I always had a great answer. And I went, so then American Beauty is one of the greatest English films of all time because Sam Mendes directed it. So I think Flash is maybe an, I mean, uh, a universal film. Maybe we could say. <laughs> I think so. I think so. So at Studio Canal, before you kind of looked at any of the materials. What kind of expectations was there about the project? You know, were there things that, would there be a point at which, if you looked at the materials and they weren't good enough to restore, you would have left it? I mean, what, what was the expectation, do you think? I, do you know, I went in with confidence and the film's age is part of my confidence. And the reason being is that just before Flash, so last, in 2019, I completed Angel Heart, the 4K Prestige Restoration. That's 86, 87. It was stored in the same uh, vaults in Paris that Flash was. I also did last, in the last two years, um, John Carpenter's They Live and uh, Prince of Darkness. Again, 80s films. And looking at the condition of those materials all being stored in similar standards, I felt quite confident going into Flash Gordon. I thought this, we will be at a good starting point. Um, and for our prestige restorations, we always have a minimum budget that we always have to spend. So it's always going to be a certain standard. So for me at the beginning, I felt confident we'd be in a good place due to the age of the neg and its storage. I got a materials test performed at Silver Salt Restoration where they tell me kind of levels of what could be achieved, what's the most worrying, what would require more budget and time. Um, that materials test was very good. We felt very confident about the original materials, as we said earlier on the call. Um, and then the most important thing became was looking at all of the previous releases under Studio Canal and going online and reviewing all of the criticism, all of the complaint that dedicated fans of Flash Gordon have had over the past decades. And, and the most important question became, can we fix those? Can we resolve those? So when you both saw Flash Gordon, did you ever think, you know, that one day be working on the original materials, you know, making this kind of crucial rebirth in 4K? Um, no, I'd say I feel very privileged um, and lucky to be able to um, work on some of these uh, films that Studio Canal have. Um, they have a great library. Um, I think Trudy's and a few have mentioned a few, just a few of those titles. Um, and the idea that you know that we can you know even 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 be involved in that process in any any small way um, just is, has been brilliant. Um, like I say, I, I think I. Specifically with Flash Gordon, actually, um, it's you know, it's 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 a, it's a film from my childhood that like it's, it's, once you see it, you never forget it. You know, it's 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 it's, it's there, um, and I, I think probably a lot of people um, feel like that. Um, and I just feel lucky to be. Um, I'm just conscious always that you know people would be would die to do what Jahanzeb and I have been lucky to have a hand in, <laughs> but we we take that responsibility seriously. Yes, absolutely. So, will there be a restoration featurette on the uh, on the Blu-ray or the 4K? Um, wow, wow. Of COVID, we, unfortunately, we, we, we had plans for it. Oh, that's <laughs> such a shame because it's so yeah, rarely you right. see it. Films go through such, and as you've described today, and you've only scratched the surface, I'm sure you've put in hundreds and hundreds of hours. It would be a real shame for viewers not to see it before and after and to, and to see the challenges you went through. It's, 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 that's frustrating. Well... Yeah, I mean, it, it, it would be nice to do. Um, you know, I'm still hopeful that when, time, when, when, when the time allows us, we'll be able to go back and do something posthumously. Um, I think that 
you know, it's quite good to just even have like the documentation of what happened and where it happened. And, you know, Jahanzeb and I often go back and look at that stuff ourselves to inform the next generation. Uh, you know, so that, that you know, hopefully we, we, we'll, we'll get to something and then we'll post it on our social media channels. That's brilliant. Now, my final question to you, this is a bit of a, don't feel you have to answer this if I've left it short notes to ask you. Um, the Ray Harryhausen centenary is this month and we're choosing our top Harryhausen creatures. There's a poll out. I've sent you a link to it. Uh, the, the Harryhausen 100s. Do you have a top three that you could offer me up or a, or a top one or two? <laughs> Cyclops. <laughs> Cyclops from Seven Voyages Sinbad. That's an excellent, excellent choice, actually. The first uh, colour uh, Dynamation film from Ray Harryhausen from 1958. It's a very good choice, Stephen. And Johanzeb, do you have a, a favourite? I need to get the list up. I, I need to get the list up. And Stephen took a good choice there with Cyclops. So look, can I, if I can get 10, 15 seconds to look at the list. And there's an um, opportunity to win a copy of the new book by Vanessa Harryhausen, Harryhausen 100, Titan the Cinema, which looks the at... Other, uh, the other good one is uh, the, the Medusa one as well. I, I <gasps> That scared me so much, and like the, the the mirror from the uh, from the shield. Is, oh my god! Like, you know, just, I uh, just saw yeah. I just got a glimpse of Medusa's head actually on the side, so I am going with that actually because I've always obsessed <laughs> with Greek mythology growing up. So yeah, yeah, Medusa, good one. Well, a really good choice. Well, Medusa's been fully restored under the supervision of the man who used to restore stuff with Ray. We have the shield as well, the large shield. So uh, yeah. We, It'd be easier to tell you what, you what we don't have from Clash of the Titans. We have virtually everything, um, as well as all the paperwork and everything else. So it's been great speaking to you, gents, today. Thank you so much for taking the time. Great. Thank, thank you very much for that. A big thanks to Studio Canal, to Stephen Hill and Jahanzeb Hyatt for taking the time to speak to me about the Flash Gordon restoration. Now, you can see for yourself on the 11th of August, when the film is released in a special box set, how it turned out. There's going to be a Blu-ray, a 4K UHD disc, the soundtrack uh, by Queen. There's going to be the Life After Flash documentary, which is definitely worth a look. And there's going to be lots of other goodies to give away inside the box. There'll also be a preview of my new book, Flash Gordon, the official story of the film. So lots to look forward to there. Thanks for listening. Copyright in Flash Gordon, the official story of the film podcast is owned by John Walsh and Titan Books Limited under license from King Features Incorporated. Audio from the film is courtesy of Studio Canal. This recording may not be reproduced in whole or in part without written permission from us. The views expressed within these podcasts do not necessarily reflect those of the associated companies or its employees. For further terms and conditions, please contact us at our Facebook page, Flash Gordon, the official story of the film.